you would go ahead and open up your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 10. Psalm chapter 10. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone can heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. When you sing these words, Earlier in the service, it may be that you felt like these lyrics were really resonating with your soul. You're going through troubles. You're going through hardship. Your hope is fainting and your grief is rising. But you also know, you really, really know that God and his word can bring a sweet relief. And so you're ending on this note of hope as you sing. That's a good place to be. That, that, is, that is really, really good. But it may be that you tasted the bitter pain of those lyrics without getting a taste of the sweet relief. Yes, Lord, I'm weary. I'm full of sorrow. But I feel no relief for the pain that I feel. It feels like you're standing over there, far away, just watching me, doing absolutely nothing as I suffer. Maybe you feel more like David does here in verse 1. Look there. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? On the one hand, these words are devastating, but on the other... Isn't it good that God gives us words like these that we can repeat back to him? When David says these words, God doesn't cut his eyes at him in anger. He's not annoyed. He doesn't let out a big groan. He doesn't pout because his feelings are hurt. Come on, David, don't talk about me like that. No. No, God welcomes David's feelings. He wants him to be honest with him. Tell me how you feel. David says these words to God, and the thing is, brothers and sisters, we can say these words to God too. Sometimes we feel like God is far off. We feel like he's just watching us as our pain drags on. It seems like he's not going to do anything. And that can be, and in, in a sense should be, an uncomfortable thought to think that way about God. And it's certainly painful to be in that position. But what matters in this This is key. What matters is that we go to him to tell him that. We we turn to our Lord and say, this is how I feel. Who else can I say this to but to you? That's what prayers of lament and songs of lament are all about. When life is full of trouble, when it feels like God is slow to respond, you can turn to him. 
You can breathe your sorrows there, as we sing. But also notice that David doesn't stop in verse 1. He teaches us how to lament beyond just this exclamation of pain, which is what verse 1 is all about. This exclamation of pain grows into venting. And this venting grows into petition. And this petition grows into trust. Specifically, we see that David vents about the arrogance and the atheism of the oppressor in verses 2 through 11. Then we see him petition God to stop them in verses 12 through 15. And then finally in verses 16 through 18, we see David's confidence that yes, God hears me when I cry out to him. This progression will help form our points for this morning. So here it is. Point number one, the arrogant atheist oppresses. Point number two, the afflicted saint petitions. And point number three, the just king listens. As we dive deeper into David's lament, when we get more specific about the trouble that he feels, our goal is going to be to answer this question. Is God going to let the wicked get away with it? Is God going to let the wicked get away with it? So let's go to the Lord. Let's ask him for his help. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you humbly. We come to your word asking for your help. We are not smart enough or emotionally intelligent enough or spiritual enough to grasp all of these words in our own strength. We need you to open up the eyes of our heart. We need you to cause our emotions to feel the way that you feel, to love what you love, to hate what you hate. We need your Holy Spirit to come and awaken us and make us holy and sanctify us and shape us more into the image of your Son. We need you this morning. I need you this morning. So would you come? Would you help us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, the arrogant atheist oppresses. Instead of living paycheck to paycheck, imagine having to live from one loaf of bread to the next. You've only got one small plot of land for subsistence farming. This is, this is all you have to eat, eat off of. It's, it's been another tough growing season. And after you scrape together what you have, you realize you've got to go, you've got to go find work in someone else's field. This isn't going to be enough to sustain you and your little ones. Somehow, your family has to eat tonight. And once you've come back with your day's wage, your little ones finish off the last bit of crumbs that you have left, you've got to find a way to do this again tomorrow. Your family has to eat. There is no wiggle room. You are hanging on by a thread every single day. There can be no missteps. This was the life of many poor and downtrodden farmers in ancient Israel. To say nothing about the position of orphans and widows. People are trying to figure out how they're going to live. Well, there were certain folks in Israel who saw this. They were looking for this. They were paying attention. 
not so they could help them, but so that they could take advantage of them. Look at the text with me, starting in verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Jump down to verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him down into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. I especially want you to notice that the actions of the wicked here are premeditated. They're clever. They're thinking of ways to get at the poor. The arrogant, he says, uh, he says the arrogant sinner hotly pursues the poor, like, like he has them in his sights so that he can take aim at him. He is deceitful and tricky towards them. He is planning mischief. He's waiting in ambush like bandits who are going to rob a coach. He was lurking like a lion tucked behind tall grass, setting traps like a hunter, looking for a way to get the poor and capitalize on them. And then David says, the helpless are crushed. They sink down. They fall by his might. How could someone be so heartless and so ruthless against anyone, let alone the most vulnerable among them? It's actually, it's pretty simple. There was good money to be made off the poor. They're going to cash in. As verse 3 says, the wicked man boasts in the desires of his soul. He doesn't care about what people need. He cares about what he wants. His most prized possession is his possessions. Verse 3 continues and says that he is greedy for gain. There is no cost too high that he isn't willing to pay in order to increase his wealth. And so, the wicked man seeks out opportunities to squeeze out of the poor man everything that he can get. Let's just consider a few examples of what this might actually look like back then. Imagine this. A wicked man might lure a poor man into a ridiculous and predatory loan. Come talk to me, brother Israelite. I, I see that you're in a bind. Why don't you just let me take care of all your food for this week? You can pay me back next week. You just pay me back double but we'll be even, no big deal. And of course, next thing you know, the poor man is unable to pay him back. And as a result, the rich man is able to steal the land that he convinced him to put up as collateral. And so now the poor man, out of money, out of food, out of land, what's he supposed to do? How is he going to take care of himself and his family? His options have dried up, and so he knows that he can offer himself as a bondservant and say, look, I've, I've got to find a way to feed my family. Just Will you take me on as your servant? I will serve you so that we can eat. And so now his land and his labor 
are the property of the wicked man. (laughs) You can just hear the cash register ring. The wicked man wins. Consider this. The poor man shows up desperate for food. And so the wicked man, what he's supposed to do is provide for him or allow him to glean and do services for him that will not require the poor man to put himself out and endanger himself. Instead, he says, why don't you just come work for me? We'll have a regular kind of employer-employee relationship. The thing is, daily wages are paid after the work is done. You go work the fields, you come to your guy you've been working for, he gives you your food, you go on your way. Day comes to a close. It's time to get paid. But the wicked man, he puts off the payment. Oh, I, I seem to have misplaced the payment. You know, why, why don't you just, I'll tell you what, why don't you just come back tomorrow and I'll pay you double. I'll make it up to you. The poor man, like he's desperate. He should cut his losses and go somewhere else. But he needs that payment and he needs tomorrow's payment. So he comes back. Remember, there's no wiggle room. And at the end of the next day, the wicked man doesn't pay him again. He says, oh man, I'll tell you what, come back again and I'll pay you quadruple. Like, I'm going to make it up to you. The poor man, his options are running low. He's hungry. (laughs) His kids are hungry, so he comes back. He works again. Of course, the wicked man doesn't pay him again. He says, why don't you just go away and never come back? Score. He gets a bunch of free labor. The poor man goes away hungry. But, wait, we can, we can take him to court. We can make things right. There's going to be good folks in Israel who are going to do the right thing and make this man pay me like he said he would. It's a good idea on paper, except the wicked man is two steps ahead of him, right? He's been schmoozing all of the right people. He's in good with the who's who of the community. And most importantly, he's got the judge in his back pocket. There will not be justice. It's this poor man's word against the rich man's word, and everyone has already taken the rich man's side. It's a lightweight, trying to slug it out with a heavyweight champion, and of course, he loses. And so he walks away, defeated, hungry, and poorer, while the wicked man walks away victorious, proud, and most importantly, wealthier. And the whole thing to David is infuriating. (laughs) It's deeply wrong. He's the king. He's supposed to be the one who's establishing righteousness in all the land. But he can't fix people's heart. And so he goes to God and he, he laments to him and he, he repeats these horrors back to him. To make matters worse, there's another layer to this. Not only is the wicked man greedy for gain and utterly selfish, but he is spiritually bankrupt. The wicked man's greatest comfort, the thing that allows him to keep going on, not worried at all, is that there is no God who is going to hold him accountable. He looks out for his prey, 
while ever having to bother to look up. You see this starting in verse 4. Look there. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek the Lord. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Then jump down to verse 11. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Some of his fellow Israelites, some folks who actually believe in God and trust in him, they go to this wicked man. They try to warn him. They're doing what any good godly neighbor should do. Yet in verse 5, you see, these righteous Israelites were actually called as foes, which is a terrifying position to be in. The good guys are your enemies, then you're the bad guy. But they don't care. The righteous Israelites, they tell them, you're not going to get away with it. But he doesn't hear what they're saying. All he can hear are the coins jangling around in his pocket. I think I'm fine. He's so arrogant that he even goes one step further and begins to scoff at God. He begins to renounce him. Maybe even in the face of the Israelites who are saying, brother, you've got to stop. Follow the Lord. This isn't okay. And he responds by saying, yeah, there's some big guy in the sky, right? He's going to hold me accountable. He's real upset. Well, if he's upset, why doesn't he do something about it? I'm right here. Go ahead. Nothing. That's what I thought. So he goes on. In his mind, the good times will never end. And the thing is, in the mind of David, as he's praying this lament, he's asking himself, is the wicked man right? Kind of seems like it. Many of these wicked men probably died rich. It's totally possible that some of them passed away quietly, smiling, thinking about how they got away with it. Is God going to let the wicked get away with it? Don't we see the wicked man today seem to get away with it? Aren't there times in your own life where choosing to do the right thing and professing your beliefs in Christ seem to slow you down while those renouncing God just blow right past you as they follow the world and they seem to win? Some of us have lost our jobs or we've been passed over for employment because of our Christian convictions. How long will you be able to do photography if you aren't willing to shoot a homosexual wedding? Will we continue to be able to teach, to be engineers, adopt children, volunteer? What will it cost you if you refuse to bow down to the idols of our cultural moment? Idols like abortion, transgenderism, a godless conception of social justice. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, very often the world thinks that those who don't bow down to the world's idols... They belong in a furnace. That same attitude that existed then still exists today. And it's gaining speed in our culture. And the one who says there is no God, he has no problem getting in line and taking your spot. Consider that 
We don't get to play fast and loose with our taxes. That's right. That's good. But why shouldn't our unbelieving neighbor do that? We must do what is right in court, telling the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. But if there is no God looking down, maybe one can get an edge by telling the truth but telling it slant. Maybe telling a little white lie. Maybe just making up a full-on fabrication. Haven't we seen the arrogant atheist proudly denying God at times, getting ahead by deceiving, by cheating, by plotting, by doing whatever it takes in a dog-eat-dog world? And all the while, God receives no praise, no thanksgiving, his name is dragged through the mud, And the godless man succeeds. Depravity is embraced. Depravity is promoted. And he can boast in his soul that he has everything that he desires without ever having to look up. Listen to how Asaph says this in Psalm chapter 73, 3 through 14. It's almost the exact same logic as what we see here. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, which is, was considered a good thing. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And all in vain have I kept my heart clean. And wash my hands in innocence, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. They do their thing and they win, I try to do the right thing and I lose. God, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. Many of us have felt this way, at least at one time or another. So that's just examples today from our context But consider how this would hit our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world as they read Psalm 10. And they're experiencing oppression at the hands of the wicked that is a thousand times worse than us. Christians around the world have a target on their back. Their possessions are stolen, their jobs are taken, their churches are raided, they are beaten and shamed. The justice system turns a blind eye. The government actually encourages violence against them. They're like sheep being led to the slaughter. And the wicked laugh and laugh and laugh and say, where is the Christian God? And sometimes we have to wonder with them, is God going to let them get away with it? Are the wicked right Are they going to win? 
That's our longest point that brings us to point number two, the afflicted saint petitions. So David expressed in verse 1 that God feels far off. And then right there in verses 2 through 11, he just kind of vents about his problem. He just repeats it back to him. God, this is what's happening. Then now here in verses 12 through 15, David petitions God for his help. He's going to ask God to do something. Look at verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Kind of feels like a, the youngest son going to his dad. He's pulling on his arm. Dad, what? get up off the couch. Come over here and stop the older brother from bullying me. David is asking God to get up from his throne, to lift up his hand, which is the symbol of his almighty power, and come to the aid of the needy and the afflicted and the oppressed. And then in verse 13, David goes a little further and he, he grounds this request in an appeal to God's glory. That's basically what he's doing. He's saying, God, why should you let these men continue to go on like this? They're, they're, they're talking bad about you. They're, they're arrogantly doing all this terrible stuff to your people. Let them know that you see them. Why don't you stop them from dishonoring your name? Bring glory to your name. And then finally, jumping down to his last request there in verse 15, David takes it to another level. Crescendos with this petition. Lord, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. He's saying, God, why don't you use your almighty arm to break the wimpy little arms of the oppressor? Man. David, can, can you pray like that? Doesn't seem like very godly. Can, can we pray like that? This is what we call an imprecatory prayer which just means you're calling on God to judge his enemies. David's calling on God to give the bad guys what they deserve. And that can hit us a little funny. As Christians, we know that we haven't been given what we deserve, so how can we go to God and ask him to give to others what they deserve? That that feels backwards. God is love, too. I mean, God's people should never praise something so mean and hateful, right? But remember, God says, vengeance belongs to the Lord. He didn't say that because he's never going to show vengeance. He said that because he is going to show vengeance one day. He says that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. But he will also give justice to those whom he decides to give justice to. So on the one hand, it's true God desires that all would repent and that everyone would come to a saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. But it's also true that God makes no apologies that he is going to pour out his just wrath on sinners. He means to do it. That's not hypothetical. And the way that hits us emotionally is completely backwards. We're surprised that God judges sin. And we completely expect God to show everyone mercy. But we shouldn't be surprised that God hates evil and that he has every desire to stamp it out because he is completely holy. And that's what everyone deserves. 
That would be fair. Fair shouldn't be surprising to us. What should be surprising is that God gives grace to anybody and that it doesn't stamp all of us out. Grace is not fair by definition. Grace is giving someone what they don't deserve. David's lied. David has cheated. David has used his authority to take advantage of others. He committed adultery. And then he murdered the husband. David is this man. Hmm. Are we any different? Aren't we the wicked man? Have you ever lied to a civil authority? Cheated on a test? Deceived the IRS? Schmoozed an employer? Taken advantage of someone weaker than you? We all have. We all have the same stuff living inside of us. So how can we pray this? How can David pray, break the arms of the wicked? There is a difference between the wicked man and the people of God. And it makes all the difference. And that is repentance. David wept bitterly over his sin. He came to God and said, God, I have messed up. I am messed up. Haven't you, Christian, been overwhelmed with godly sorrow for your sin? Haven't you been grieved by the same sin that lives in your neighbor that is in you? Haven't you come to God with it, fully aware that He sees us and terrified by the fact that we are going to stand before His judgment throne? Do you see that difference? The wicked man, there's no God, I'm good. The righteous man who also does wicked things saying, Lord, I am not good. You do see me. I need you to spare me. We know that we have no defense. We know that we're guilty. And so we cry out to God. And more specifically, we cry out to Jesus, our Savior, and say, forgive me and pound our chest, for I am a sinner. And Jesus hears us. And he did what needed to be done. He lived the sinless life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved. He made a way for us to be cleansed from our wickedness. And it's true for you too. If you will trust in Christ and repent of your sin, He will wash away your sin and He will give you His righteousness. He receives punishment but those who are in Him receive mercy. And because of this, and only because of this, God now calls us His children. And we can have the audacity to go to Him and ask Him for deliverance and say, Lord, would you judge the wicked? Not because I'm any different, but because I am counted innocent in Christ. And I love righteousness. And I know that you love righteousness. So first... We should ask that God would bring about repentance. That's a, that's a good prayer. We should pray that often in the lives, for the lives of, of those who are wicked. But it's also good and right for us to ask Him to end all wickedness. And there, there can feel like there's a conflict there. 
You feel this conflict with David when he prays for his son Absalom. His own son is a wicked man. And he prays that, Lord, that you would spare him, change him, bring him to repentance. That prayer we get. And then he prays, Lord, would you crush the wicked? Do you you have categories for that? I love my son, bring him to repentance. But Lord, I hate wickedness and I know you hate wickedness. Lord, I want a world where there is no more evil. Intuitively, everyone already knows that it's good that evil would stop. We all want evil to stop. It's just that it's really hard for us to accept that people in their sin, that's what needs to stop. That that's the problem. God does stop evil in one way, through Jesus Christ. That's our preferred way. (laughs) Make evil people into good people in Christ, yes. But there is another way. And that is through judgment. God stopping evil is good news for some, and it's the worst news for others. And so the Bible gives us prayer language for asking God to step in, intervene, stop evil people from driving your people into the ground. These wicked people who are terrorizing your creation, despising your name, oppressing your children, and whistling as they go, Lord, will you stop them? Their judgment will be the salvation of those who are counted innocent in Christ. That's how it fits together. Their judgment will be the salvation of those who are counted innocent in Christ. But then we have to return to the problem here in Psalm 10. That all sounds good. This petition makes sense. Yes, thank you for this this language, Lord. But are you going to do it? David's petitioning you like he's so confident that you're going to do this, but are you? Or is David wrong? Are you going to pass by his petition unnoticed? Lord, are you going to let the wicked get away with it? Brings us to point number three. The good news is that the just king listens. The just king listens. God has heard every single prayer that his people have ever prayed. He has listened to every single one of their moments of crying. He has observed every single moment of confusion, every single moment of frustration. He has seen every single abuse that has ever been done. And he sees the wicked, he knows what they are plotting. He is not caught off guard by a single scheme of the wicked man. David knows this, and we need to know this too. So look at the present tense verbs here, these last few verses. Verse 14. But, Lord, you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. Verse 16. 
The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Verse 17. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. This is the word of God. This is true. From the Jewish orphan to the oppressed farmer to the faithful believer to the persecuted church, we've all experienced verse 1 from one degree to another. I know what it's like to feel like God is far away and He's hiding. But, brothers and sisters, we cannot stay there. We have to remind ourselves, even through our tears, which I can imagine David is through this whole psalm, probably still in tears. He has to remind himself that God does see. He is taking note. He is taking it into his hand. He does hear my desires. He is the king forever. Despite what you might sometimes think, God is not like the dad sitting on the couch, indifferent to your calls. He's not. Go tug on his arm. Plead your case to him. You should do that. But also, trust in him. Have hope. Believe him when he says, I hear you and I'm near to you. I'm not far off. It boils down to that. Do you believe that God really is king? That he really does care? That he really does hear you? That that the wicked really will perish from his land, which is his new heavens and his new earth? If you believe that, but you're struggling to believe, I believe, help my unbelief, then let's just get a little practical. means we need to store up the Word of God and His promises. You've got to have ammunition on hand to shoot down your biggest fears and your doubts when they come for you, because they're coming. And if you're caught off guard, and depression and anxiety and lament just overwhelms you, you'll get stuck in verse 1. (laughs) And that is a bad place to be. You've got to be able to pull out the promises like David does here. Here's what I know. Even though I don't feel it, This is what I know is true. Have the Bible on hand. This also means we need to lean on our brothers and sisters for prayer and for counsel. I mean, when you're weak, (laughs) go to somebody that you can tell. Ask them for prayer. Prayer is not the same thing as doing nothing. And when you're blinded by your suffering and your fear and your pain... Let the body of Christ grab you by the hand and just lead you a little further down the road. Let them help you get past verse 1 and all the way through to verse 14. Another thing we can do is preach to ourselves. Sometimes our emotions, they'll hijack your faith. You know, we've been there. It's, it's, It's like you've lost control. The dark clouds of doubt and depression have completely blocked out the sunlight of hope. 
And in those moments, and this is really hard, repeat your pain to God, but then also stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. You know, like, like God's not here. God doesn't care. And through tears, you've got to say to yourself, yes, He is. He is here. Yes, He does. He does hear. Lord, I feel like you don't, but I know that these rock-hard truths are real. I can feel them. I'm touching them. I'm going to stand on those. So listen up, self. I know it seems like God doesn't hear, but He does. He tells me that He does. It's not just the present tense verbs. That should give us hope this morning. It's also... The future tense verbs. So we're going to end our time there. Look at the last two verses. Starting halfway through 17. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of of the earth may strike terror no more. This sermon isn't about why God delays. That's a good sermon that can be written. But it's just not the question that we're trying to answer here in Psalm chapter 10. What's important for you and me this morning, believer or unbeliever, for better or for worse, is that God is not going to delay forever. He isn't. He isn't. He will incline His ear to do justice. And when He does, the carnal earthly man will never strike terror again. To answer the the question I posed at the beginning, the wicked will not get away with it. That could be five seconds from now. It could be five centuries from now. It could be five millennia from now. I don't know when, but I do know that God's people will most assuredly escape the wicked because the wicked will not escape God. One day, the king's court will be put into session. In fact, we've already seen that day dawn. We've already gotten a foretaste of this. Jesus gives us a taste of this. Listen to Jesus, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. He says, he stands up and says this to a group of people. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. He has sent me to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A year that will never end. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogues were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, The scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
what Jesus started 2,000 years ago. It's already done. What he started, he will someday finish. And it will be someday soon. To put together everything we've seen so far in Psalm 10 then. God has heard. He does hear. And he will hear. The fatherless, the oppressed, and the poor in spirit. These promises then should strengthen the hearts of God's people everywhere. And not only that, but God, who never lies, has promised to be the one who's going to do the strengthening. So even though we have these practical tips about trusting in how God's going to, He's good and that He's, he's going to deliver us, He says that He will in the end be the one who does the strengthening. So He says in verse 17, He doesn't want you to stay in the dumps, perpetually devoid of any hope. No, God wants to be the one who fills you with hope. Just listen to this from Romans, just a few places. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Romans 15, 13. This is the key one. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God wants you to repeat your pain to Him, but He also wants you to rejoice in hope as you trust in Him. Ask Him to fill you up with hope. In light of all of this, there's so much more that can be said, but in light of all of this, I think it's best for us to end where the story of the Bible ends. On the highest note of hope. Revelation 21.4 God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And on that day there will be no more men to strike terror and the new heavens, and the new earth. God will not let the wicked get away with it, and the innocent will be with him in heaven, rejoicing in him, no longer rejoicing in hope, but rejoicing in the realization of hope, because who hopes for what they already have? That day is coming. So trudge on, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you would fill us up with hope. Help us to rejoice in your promises. Help us to trust in your word, even when it's hard to believe your word. Would you use our emotions and pain to drive us to you? And while we're at your feet, would you give us a sweet relief? Relief now, but then an incorruptible hope that we will have full relief forever with you one day soon. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.